Hi there. Before this week's episode, we wanted to give a little bit of a trigger warning. We will be speaking on serious and delicate matters such as mental health and mental illness. The information you're about to hear is based on research and our own personal experiences. And in no way should replace a proper diagnosis by a physician or psychiatrist. Welcome to episode three, season two of Conceptual Chaos. Chaos. I'm Grizzy. And I'm Tori. And as we mentioned earlier, this week's episode is going to be completely about mental health. And um, this is going to be probably a three-part series, guys. So we wanted to split the episodes into certain focuses for mental illness because and mental health because it, it you know, it, there's so much there's to talk about so much. So um, in this particular episode, we want to focus mo- mostly on the history of mental, mental health mm-hmm. and mental illness throughout the United States. Also going to bring in a special guest that's going to give us a bit more information on certain symptoms regarding certain uh, diagnoses. As well as 10 of the most common mental illnesses in the United States as of today. Right. And the reason that we're doing this is mostly because we want to bring awareness. It's been known that throughout history, mental health and mental illness are very much taboo topics to talk about. Mm -hmm. When it comes to, is somebody sane of mind? There seems to be a lot of like stigmas towards that, you know? Um, But we want to obviously showcase that it's a very common thing, Mm -hmm. especially nowadays, especially post-pandemic world. People are dealing with a lot mentally, and we wanted to let them know they're not alone, one. Two, there's treatment. And three, they're going to be okay. And also, we wanted to bring some guests in just to let you guys know that there are people out here struggling with the same thing, if not, you know, experiences with medication mm-hmm. and all we want to touch a little bit of everything they're in different stages in their journey. mental illness mm-hmm. journey as well so they can also bring forth to the table a lot of conversations that you may not have gotten to yet but may need so i think we'll begin with a little bit of history on the topic history lesson so we wanted to say that, first of all, we're going to be focusing on mental health and mental illness as it's been known throughout the United States history. But we did want to put out there that, you know, throughout different cultures throughout time, mental illness has been seen in many different ways. Not always a, such a stigma like we do in the U.S. or have seen it in the U.S. There are some cultures where mental illness has been synonymous with spiritual leaders or witches or people of special uh, abilities. And even in some cultures today, like India, uh, mental illness is also very much tied to religion and cultural practices. Um, So with that in mind, we did want to put that out there because, you know, this isn't a generalized view of the world as we know it through mental illness. It's very much just the U.S. that we're going to talk about. Okay, so... Throughout history, there has always been documented uh, reports of mental illness. In the 1700s, 
um, was really the first time that anybody started to have concerns about the treatment of the mentally ill. And they started placing people that suffered from mental illness in sunny rooms and providing them exercise rituals to see if that improved their moods mm-hmm. at the time. It, very little was known at this time about mental illnesses. But obviously, some mistreatments did still occur. So let's fast forward to the 1800s. Emile Kraepelin um, went ahead and separated schizophrenia and manic depressive psychosis through scientific studies. Dorothea Dix pushed to establish 32 state hospitals for the mentally ill. Hospitals, unfortunately, did not cure them, which led to overcrowding. In the 20th century, Clifford Beers released an autobiography detailing the degrading and dehumanizing treatment he received in a Connecticut mental institution. He spearheaded the organization that would later become the National Mental Health Association, and then after that would change its name to Mental Health America. In the 1930s, mental illness treatments were in their infancy and Other treatments included lobotomies to treat severe anxiety, schizophrenia, and depression. In 1946, Harry Truman signed the National Mental Health Act, which was an act that funded research into the mind, brain, and behavior. The National Institute of Mental Health, the NIMH, was formed in 1949. And then lithium was also first introduced in 1949 as the first effective drug for mental illness, including manic depression, which was later known as bipolar disorder. As of 1952, the first antipsychotic drug was discovered, as well as a series of antipsychotics. Although the drugs did not cure, but did help symptoms, 70% of patients clearly improved on these drugs. From 1950 to 1980, in the U.S., the number of patients decreased from 560,000 to 130,000 mental health patients. And that came with the help from the new psychotic medication and treatments. However, many did become homeless upon release from institutions due to inadequate housing and follow-up care. By the 1960s, National Alliance for the Mentally Ill and the National Alliance for Research on Schizophrenia and Depression were formed to advocate for the mentally ill and finance research. And nowadays, there's more treatments and medications that have proved to be more successful. This also causes less people to be in mental hospitals for long periods of time. But there's also lack of funding due to private insurances that unfortunately keep people from being treated. The good news about that is that people are still being treated in their local communities through other free organizations that try to target mental illness. Unfortunately, though, homelessness and incarceration of the mentally ill does continue to be a major issue. And resources and beds are needed for those severe cases that still require institutionalization. we've come a long way because not much has changed yeah personally I know that like even in my family there's still like this stigma about 
mental health and like when people or even myself when I brought up like my anxiety in the past to them like there was like this like you just gotta you just gotta fucking deal with it (laughs) like you just gotta fucking deal with it yeah and no that's not the case you don't just have to live your whole life suffering through with this you know with this illness with this disease whatever it is there's help for you there's treatments there's medicine there's um other forms of treatments that we'll go into a bit later but it's just it's kind of sad that like we haven't really developed much you know from yeah i think we have came a long way but our parents and our grandparents it was definitely a big stigma where it's don't be weak yeah um you're fine be strong get over it um and i think that this generation is definitely standing up and advocating and it's you see it all over the internet mm-hmm. you see it all over you know um social media how to take care of your mental things mm-hmm. that people can do aromatherapy being one with nature and i just think that it's really sad because in modern day where that article left was that the homelessness population a lot of them are mentally ill and they're it's left untreated um that makes me sad, you know? That's a huge part of, of today in this world. But, I mean, we're taking steps closer to getting everybody help. And I think with time, yeah, we can just hope for the best, you we, know? We saw with those numbers that we spoke about, the 560,000 mm-hmm. down to 130,000 in a span of 30 years, guys. Like, that's amazing. Yeah. That's great. By 1980 as well. So, And since 1980, I mean, it's been practically enough. <laughs> couple years you know yeah so I'm sure those numbers um are a lot better now and well with the pandemic who knows you know (laughs) but they need a pandemic support group yeah definitely because the pandemic did a lot of damage to Mm -hmm. all of our mentals I mean we're not meant to be stuck inside um for the health for our own health that's what it was but it takes its toll on you of course yeah as well as a lot of people's financial situations were flipped upside down Mm -hmm. i mean you were comfortable one day the next you lost everything and we're gonna go into a few of the top 10 most seen u.s mentally mental illnesses um but just so you guys know like mental illness isn't just brought on by oh you were born with it or you know, um, it's just trauma. No, it's really made up of so many different aspects of your everyday life that you experience. And as well as your childhood. Your childhood, the traumas that you went through, the situation, the hardships you're going through now, how much you can take of that in conjuncture with what society has to help you with those things, you know? So that all is part of what makes up mental illness so it's a huge umbrella, but we're, like Rizal said, going to start with the 10 most common in the United States as of now. This uh, information is taken from an article called 10 of the Most Common Mental Health Disorders by Martin Dupuy. Martin Dupuy is a senior associate dean of the Burnett Honors College. He earned his bachelor's degrees in economics and political science from Albion College in Michigan and his Juris Doctorate from the Washington College of Law at the American University in Washington, D.C. And you can find this article on thehealthage.com. So we're going to go ahead and get started with anxiety disorder. Anxiety disorder is one of the most common mental health disorders today, with nearly 20% of U.S. adults having experienced an anxiety disorder. 
Anxiety disorders are marked by feelings of intense fear or distress that can prevent a person from doing everyday activities. Some common emotional symptoms of anxiety disorders are feelings of apprehension, tension, restlessness, or irritability, and anticipating the worst or always watching for danger in seemingly ordinary circumstances. Physical signs include a pounding heart rate, shortness of breath, headaches, upset stomach, and more. The next one is bipolar disorder. Bipolar disorder is marked by dramatic shifts in a person's mood, energy, and general ability to think in a straightforward manner. While this condition does not affect as many people around the world as some others on this list, if left untreated, bipolar disorder can be one of the worst mental health disorders. Some of the common symptoms of bipolar disorder are mania, which is characterized by psychotic episodes as well as severe depression. The exact causes of, of bipolar disorder are still being studied. Borderline personality disorder, characterized by difficulties regulating emotion, impulsivity, and an inability to maintain healthy relationships, a borderline personality disorder is a serious mental health disorder that can affect a person's daily life. Some common symptoms include making frantic efforts to avoid abandonment by friends and family, unstable personal relationships, self-harming behavior, chronic feelings of boredom or emptiness, and more. As with bipolar disorder, the exact cause of borderline personality disorder is still being heavily researched. The next one is depression. As with anxiety, depression is one of the most common mental health disorders seen around the world today. Depression is more than just feeling sad and is a serious mental health condition that requires an official diagnosis and treatment. Some people may experience a single depressive episode in their life, whereas others may experience many. Common symptoms of depression include changes in sleep or appetite, a lack of concentration, a loss of energy, lack of interest in activities, hopelessness, or guilty thoughts, physical aches and pains, and much more. Depression is a serious mental health disorder that can cause trauma, so do not ignore the signs and symptoms. Eating disorders. Those who seem to become preoccupied with food and weight issues can sometimes develop one of many eating disorders that can be dangerous both physically and mentally. Eating disorders can develop in anybody at any age, though they are most common in younger adults and adolescents. Anorexia nervosa, bulimia nervosa, and binge eating disorder are among the most common and are characterized by unhealthy habits involving food intake. Generalized anxiety disorder. Generalized anxiety disorder is a subset of the umbrella anxiety disorders, but earns a place on this list as it is one of the most common anxiety disorders today. Being able to occur at any age and featuring symptoms similar to panic disorder, GAD, generalized anxiety disorder, is characterized by excessive anxiety regarding two or more aspects of life. Palpitations, shortness of breath, and dizziness are all common symptoms of generalized anxiety disorder. This mental health disorder can appear in anybody and has become even more prevalent with remote work in the pre and post pandemic world. Obsessive-Compulsive Disorder An obsessive-compulsive disorder, known as OCD, involves repetitive and unwanted thoughts leading to overwhelming urges to commit certain behaviors. These compulsions can range from person to person and look drastically different depending upon the person affected. People with obsessions often have feelings about harming or having harmed another person, doubts that they did something right, fears of speaking out in public, and more. Compulsions associated with OCD may include doing something at a certain number of times, 
rinsing hands excessively due to fear of germs, and checking everything over and over again. PTSD is a form of a mental health disorder that is only just now receiving attention. It should have received for years. Any traumatic event such as a natural disaster, military combat, assault, and more can cause PTSD that has a lasting effect on a person's mental health. Cognitive and mood symptoms are among the most commonly seen in regard to PTSD, which include negative thoughts about one's self-worth, depression, anxiety, out-of-body experiences, and more. Some people may also experience reoccurring or intrusive, distressing memories of the event that caused their PTSD in the first place. So those were the top 10 most common U.S. mental illnesses seen today. But these aren't the only disorders people are suffering from. Mm -hmm. There's so many other ones. There's going to be somebody that comes on and talks a little bit more about other symptoms that you guys might suffer from. And if there's a particular um, disorder you want us to look up and, and again, see what the symptoms are for you, go ahead and email us and DM us. But remember that our (laughs) description should not replace that uh, diagnosis from your doctor. So always follow that up with going to the doctors. One should never ignore mental health concerns if they have them. Like Grizel said, recognizing um, any of the symptoms above and getting a proper diagnosis is the first step. Well, now we have a very special treat for you all listening because one of my bestest friends in the whole wide world since forever, I mean like 15 plus years, is here with us and she's very smart and she knows a lot about um, all this mental health stuff. So (laughs) it is my pleasure to introduce to you Miss Gabby. Yay! Hi, everyone. And um, we brought you here, obviously, because you know, I mean, you studied psychology. Yes, I did. Why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and what you do and what you know? So my name is Gabby. I have a bachelor's degree in psychology and communication studies. I am currently uh, doing an internship in a psychiatric office in Indio on the weekends. Um, my main focus is in regards to social and behavioral psychology, main emphasis on abnormal psychology, which touches on disorders, primarily on anxiety, depression, ADD, ADHD, and um, I am also currently employed with the county and I work in the medical. God damn. Talk about mother of dragons, breaker of pains, right? <laughs> um, so this is a bad bitch to put into smaller <laughs> words. And we brought you here for your knowledge to pick your brain because we obviously don't, you know, have all of the degrees and, and knowledge that you do regarding all these illnesses. And we really do want to try to help people and direct people towards 
the best treatment. And I think part of that is just understanding what it is that they're going through, right? So um, later on for series two and three, we're going to bring in five guests just to talk about their experiences and just their own journeys. Yeah. But before we bring them on, we wanted to bring you on so you can give us a little bit of like background of what you know, symptoms are for certain things that like, we're not going to go over on the podcast, because there is people out there suffering from things like psychoses that like, I don't know anybody about, you know, anybody that has that, but that doesn't mean it doesn't exist. So um, why don't we start? Uh, so we can start off by saying um, in countries such as like the US, uh, mental disorders are the second leading cause of disease related disabilities and mortality ranking slightly behind um, cardiovascular conditions and slightly ahead of cancer. So it's not something that is not known to the world. It's something that is very common, um, especially with it being the second leading disease um, related to disabilities and mortality. That alone lets you know that it's not something that very few people suffer from. suffer from. It's basically something that one out of four people currently suffer um, or will experience a serious, um, a serious form of abnormal behavior, such as depression, alcoholism, or schizophrenia at some point during their lifetime. Um, That's nuts to me. Like, those numbers are higher than I super, thought. They're super, yeah. Mm-hmm. Like, I thought it was going to be, like, one out of every, like, 100 people maybe have something like this, but... Very common. Very. Yeah. The symptoms and signs of mental disorders, including such phenomena as as depressed moods, panic attacks, and bizarre beliefs are known as psychopathology, which literally translates to pathology of the mind. Mm -hmm. Um, Abnormal psychology is the application of psychological science to the study of mental disorders. So it's not something that um, suffer of some type of abnormal behavior. Um, that is a huge number. Like the girls said, it's not, it's like the person that's sitting next to you can be someone that's suffering and you don't, it doesn't have to be something that is on their face. It's like some people can be suffering in silence. It's not something that's just going to be shown as like, there's so many different disorders like the way people, people can be going through. show to. it too is just like so sporadic or, or not show it because mm-hmm. there's been a lot of people I've been surprised with that, um, like, I would have had no idea that they were suffering from something unless they, like, talked to me about it, you know? So it's it's crazy. Yeah. Um, the top 10 mental um, health disorders right now that are known are anxiety disorders, bipolar disorders, depression, eating disorders, dissociative disorders, paranoia, PTSD, psychosis, schizophrenia, and OCD. But that list alone does not even begin to put a gap in all the other disorders that people can have. Those are just the primary top 10 that are currently most talked about, I guess, on the internet or just amongst people or that doctors are diagnosing people with. Um, But the list can go on and on, on the different um, disorders people and mental disorders people go through we kind of went over some of those, um, me and Tori, but there was some on that list that we just, we were not familiar with. I mean, like I've heard of schizophrenia, but like, what is that? Um, schizophrenia is a form of psychosis um, in general terms that refers to um, several types of severe mental disorders in which the person is consider- considered to be out of um, contact with reality. 
um, mental disorders are typically defined by a set of characteristic features. Uh, one symptom by itself, um, itself is seldom sufficient to make a diagnosis. A group of symptoms that appears together and are assumed to represent a specific type of disorder is referred to as a syndrome, but mental disorders are defined more as a persistent uh, maladaptive behavior. So people with schizophrenia tend to have unrealistic and um, paranoid beliefs. Um, an example could be that they could feel like they're being poisoned. And so if someone is watching them, um, they have peculiar and occasional difficulty in understanding patterns of speech. Um, they have diminished emotional expressions. There's discrepancies in their thoughts and perceptions, like a divided mind for them. Does that include like lies? Does that include lies? Yeah, like are they more likely to lie more? <laughs> Well, they are basically not in tact with their reality and stuff, okay. so they lose their sense of reality. I have a question. Okay, so I've heard or, yeah, I've read somewhere that actually people that have schizophrenia are super, super smart. And I don't know if they're, like, almost geniuses, but to the point where they are sensitive to certain things, whereas us here you know we kind of just go based off of what we see here touch and they what do you think like they that? live in their mind kind of and like their whatever their happens in their mind is like, like their... they're very very smart when it comes to everything around them but like she said they have like a divided mentality so their thoughts and perceptions are basically divided so not everything that they're seeing they start hallucinating a lot and stuff and it's not just visual it's audio um I have heard the concept of them being um, geniuses and being a lot smarter, but there hasn't been enough studies, mm -hmm. um, at least from what I read, in regards to them being having a higher IQ than someone that does not have some type of mental disorder. Do you know of like famous people that were considered schizophrenic? Like, is there case studies where it's like, mostly people that we know had high IQs? Unfortunately, no. Um, I don't actually know anybody that has schizophrenia. It's only been in papers that I've had to do research on or in classes that I've had to do research on it. Um, unfortunately, also in the practice that I work, um, do my internship in um, or on the weekends and stuff, they don't get too many schizophrenic patients. But for people that do um, suffer from schizophrenia, they do have an impairment in the ability to perform social and occupational roles. Um, and another consideration in identifying the presence of mental disorders. Um, they have delusional beliefs and disorganized speech typically, which lead for them to have a profound disruption in their relationships with other people. Mm -hmm. So their social skills begin to lack because they do not know how to speak to people and stuff they start and then that's where their paranoia starts taking over a lot and i don't know how many people know this but um, people that are diagnosed with schizophrenia at least 60 percent of those will be males so it is more common for males to be the ones um to develop schizophrenia which um it is more likely to be diagnosed between the ages of 18 to 25 years old. Mm -hmm. uh, there have been recent studies that they can be diagnosed as early as 
being 16 years old, and it is a genetic um, disorder. Um, it's a genetic component, and some people can say it associates to like the flu season um, and schizophrenia. There's a mix. There's a people claim that there is a um, connection between seasons and schizophrenia. Oh. They say that people that are born between the months of January and April are more likely to be diagnosed with schizophrenia. That's interesting. That's super interesting. And actually, I'm going to take the time here to look up why that is. Oh, I think I found it. Okay. According to this article in schizophrenia.com, and this is written by, let me get you some credentials here. No credentials, so take this with a grain of salt, if you will. But it says, according to an article in New Scientist magazine, research su suggests people who develop schizophrenia in Europe and North America are more likely to be born in the winter and early spring, which is February and March. In other words, the subjects were born during these months had a slightly higher than average rate of schizophrenia, while subjects born in August and September had a slightly lower than average rate. There seems to be about a 10% difference in risk of schizophrenia between the high winter and spring and low risk months of birth. One possible reason the researchers believe may explain this seasonality of schizophrenia risk is the association between winter, spring, births, and schizophrenia may be related to sun exposure. A lack of sunlight, for example, during the shorter days of winter can lead to vitamin D deficiency which scientists believe could alter the development of a child's brain in the mother's womb or after birth. Interesting. Wow. That's crazy. So basically it's somehow tied to a vitamin D deficiency or it could be at least. That's not just the case with schizophrenia. I mean, you hear that from depression. There's mm -hmm. people that have seasonal depression. I don't know if any other mental illnesses also have that claim like it's a seasonality thing but it's interesting to know how like even our own environments can somehow trigger like these mental illnesses yeah in people which you're right um schizophrenia is basically due to enlarged um ventricles that hold um cere cerebral spinal fluid um it also reduces gray matter which is a prime uh, primarily in the frontal lobe you lose neural tissue reduction of neurons and as surprising it is cannabis can actually speed up the process of schizophrenia. I'm not surprised. I've had a theory because I mean, it is kind of, I mean, cannabis can cause certain changes in your brain, you know? So obviously anything that can cause that, including psychedelics and like, I don't know, isn't that like a loss of reality in itself? Like, it, it really is, but it's actually very common for people with schizophrenia to be smokers mm -hmm. and stuff. So studies have shown that a lot of people that have schizophrenia, that that's like their coping me mechanism, aside mm -hmm. from having to take just their regular medications that get mm -hmm. they get yeah. from their doctors. Now, let me contradict myself by saying that I've also heard that certain um, psychedelics like shrooms have actually helped people with certain mental diseases, including psychoses. What do you have to say about that? I'm not going to get into the topic of shrooms. <laughs> <laughs> that is very much um, 
to each their own in that topic. Um, I've never read any studies specifically speaking about shrooms. I do know that some people do use shrooms for different mental disorders or different disorders. Yeah, like I've heard about uh, microdosing, yes. like tiny, tiny amounts. Mm -hmm. I have heard of that. Um, I've never actually done a study or read a study specifically in regards to that. That stuff like shrooms could be something that could help with reversing the um, hallucinations that people have. Who knows? That could be something in the future. That's something we don't know mm -hmm. at the moment. Um, I know. I know. <laughs> <laughs> just kidding. Just kidding. But I did. I'm going to go into like a little bit of holistic medicine later on, mm -hmm. just because like with my experience, I turned to alternative forms of medicine because I was a little scared to, you know, take the, the good stuff. <laughs> and so I wanted to see what your opinion was on that because I also haven't read any articles yet, but I'm going to before we get there to make sure that I'm not giving you just like personal opinions. No, that's true. Um, unfortunately, there's no specific treatment for schizophrenia aside from taking the medications that are given to you um, by your doctors. And, and one of the biggest treatments that has shown to be the biggest help when it comes to schizophrenia, believe it or not, is having a strong support system around you. Um, people do not realize how important and how crucial it is to have a strong supportive system that is there to help you through any type of mental disorder or any abnormal disorder, not just schizophrenia, but just for schizophrenia alone, that is one huge, huge aspect in order for them to get some type of treatment. It's like you're taking the words out of my mouth. It's like you've known me forever and we're one because I'm going to touch on that later too. Um, but schizophrenia is actually um, not the only one that, um, the only mental disorder that um, craves or needs um, strong support system. You have all the other mental disorders mm -hmm. that um, also require a lot of strong support systems around them and a lot of people to understand them. One of them being um, primarily anxiety disorder, which is another huge- Ding, 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 ding. <laughs> <laughs> another huge disorder um, that a lot of Americans or just a lot of people in the world are currently suffering or going through and it's very unfortunate that in some cultures, it's something that isn't really spoken about. Um, schizophrenia is an actual psychosis disorder that is medically diagnosed really early on because there's specific characteristics and features that lead you to knowing. Um, anxiety isn't always like that. It's one of those where you don't have to be constantly shaking or being in a nervous state in order for someone to know that you suffer of anxiety. Um, and it's very sad because in certain cultures, um, anxiety is very looked upon, down upon and stuff, especially coming from a Latin um, family. It's very, it's very much um, taboo. Mm -hmm to speak of having some type of disorder, um, not just anxiety, depression as well. Um, and dismissed. Yeah, it's one of those where people can say that you are very much, you're exaggerating. It's not that serious, but 
not having that um, that strong support system can actually make your entire mental state get even worse and stuff. It's not just about taking medication and stuff. It's like you, the people that surround you um, play a large part in how your mental state is going to be. I agree. Like I said, I will touch a little bit on support systems later when I give a little bit of my antidote, um, probably on episode two. Uh, but I did also want to talk about, we were, we were kind of having a free flow conversation earlier about our environments, right? And how it's not just traumas, like specific traumas that could initiate triggers to start these mental illnesses in people but really it could be anything and it can even be like how we were brought up you know something that happened so long ago can stick by us for so many years afterwards and you were kind of touching upon um something that the whole toxic thing like being around toxic people what does that do do to you um i do have to say I have actually had a therapist that I've been on and off seeing for about eight years. And there is a specific topic that was brought up in one of my sessions that has really stuck with me where she started uh, telling me that the reason why certain relationships or certain friendships or just any type of um, relationship, why it's so hard or so difficult for me to stay with them a lot of it has to do because I'm so accustomed to being in such a chaotic environment, talk with toxic people, toxic environments, that that has become my norm to constantly be in this fight or flight type of situation. Okay, so I have a question. Yes. So you're saying when you used to toxic environments, you grew up around that environment, um, that you crave that? Or do you think that you're attracted to that kind of those kind of relationships? So you actually become so accustomed to it that you that's what you attract. That's oh. what you end up seeking. You can attract people that are not chaotic. Mm-hmm. And you can create the chaos yourself. You can oh. create and you're so accustomed to being in such a chaotic and toxic environment and stuff that you will create, you have this anxiety of like, when is, when is the ball going to drop? So you yourself can create a chaotic environment for yourself with this person and stuff, or you'll completely push away something that could potentially be good for you and stuff because you're so accustomed to the ups and downs and everything. Yeah. So it's crazy. I, I, feel like I totally get what you're saying because I'm going to open up a little bit here, but, and I hate always talking about my past because now I'm realizing like, holy shit, I made it through some dark times. Way to go. But (laughs) um, it kind of bashes a little bit on like my family and I don't mean to bash on them. I have no like ill, you know, or like rincor towards them or anything, but um, I did grow up in a very toxic environment. I, would constantly, I've kind of opened up a little bit about to you guys before, you know, would constantly see um, certain grownups in my household fighting constantly and things like that. And I think it just became a norm for me because I do remember that there was a certain time when, and I was telling you a little bit about this the other day that like uh, my dad had left and he was the outlier when it comes to chaotic 
behavior in the household. And it was a constant roller coaster, even with his own emotions. It was just up and down, up and down. You never knew if he was going to be happy, mad, sad, whatever, you know. So I feel like there was always like this tension, this like walking on eggshells at the house constantly. And um, when he left, I felt like, I mean, I was just a kid. I was still in like elementary, but I remember I would do some crazy stuff, like take my brother's homework just so I can excuse myself to go take it to him to make sure he was okay. And as soon as I found out he was okay, oh, it's time for me to go. I can't be in school because I can't stand it here, you know? So I'd go to the nurse's office and they'd give me a thermometer, like those little plastic ones. And I'd go in the bathroom, run it underwater. It'd be fucking hot. She'd call my mom. My mom said, let her walk home. I'd walk home get about halfway and then I'd be like holy shit something's gonna happen to them I should go back walk halfway back and then go back again and that happened for like a whole ass month while my dad was gone and um I remember that like my mom kind of confronted me and it wasn't until like we argued every night that I would calm down like I needed that to be able to go to sleep peacefully Like I needed that just to be able to function. And again, the same shit would happen the next day. So it's almost like I was yearning for some level of like normalcy, but at the same time also, and my normalcy wasn't like healthy, obviously, Yeah. Yeah. but I was also yearning for like some sort of like, um, like routine, routine. I needed some sort of routine to like really get me to really just like, calm down because I felt like I guess erratic like I was being the erratic one when the person that was erratic before left you know and I feel like now as a grown-up um a lot of things have spawned from that you know I feel constantly that I'm fighting back ideas of oh what's the worst that's gonna happen because it's gonna happen I need to prepare myself you know because that was my childhood the worst things happened and then um Like, I feel like I constantly sabotage myself in a way where I do know I'm sabotaging and I do know that it's going to come out and I'm telling myself, stop, stop, stop. And you're still and I still do it like I can't help but do it. It's like it gives me that release. It gives me that I'm not going to even say comfort, but that release Mm -hmm. that, you know, like this is normal. Like now I can go back to myself. And you've known me for a long time. You've known me for a long time, too. Mm -hmm. But I don't think you've ever seen the part of me where, like, I get really, really erratic. And then the next minute I could be like, so anyways, yeah, let's go. Okay, whatever. I'm fine, you know? (laughs) And I I just brush it off, like, if it's nothing because I'm used to that, you know? Yeah, no. And a lot of what you're saying right now comes and shows that you were possibly battling anxiety since a very young age and you didn't even know and stuff seeing all of this happen around you around your environment and stuff the ups and downs um that you dealt with uh, with your parents and stuff um without you realizing it and stuff your mom was your support system to try to Mm -hmm. um get you out of it obviously the techniques that she used are different um but it's it's one of those where it's like at the end of the day she was trying to be there for you trying to bring a sense back to you and stuff and there's not just one way to deal with anxiety or try to help someone with anxiety it's one of those anxiety is a feeling of dread that results from repressed feelings memories 
desires and experiences that emerge to the surface of awareness. Um, it can be considered as a state of tension that motivates us to do something It develops out of conflict among the id, ego, and superego over control um, of the available uh, psychic energy. The function of anxiety is to warn um, off impending danger. And it's one of those where it's like we very common and stuff, which are the reality, neurotic, and moral anxieties. Um, the reality anxiety is the fear of uh, danger from the external world and the level of which anxiety is proportionate to the degree of real threat. Neurotic and moral anxieties are evoked by uh, threats to the balance of power within the person. They signal to the ego that unless appropriate measures are taken, the danger may increase until the ego is overthrown. That And then you also have neurotic anxiety, which is the fear that the instincts will get out of so, hand. Sorry. Yes, sorry of course. Interrupt. But of course. the first one is more like people that are afraid to leave their house. Yes. Okay. Yeah, that can be, yeah, that can be used as an example. Okay. Of course. Yeah, no. So reality anxiety um, is basically you lose the balance of power. So it's like you can, you kind of titter totter in your own emotions. You feel like you cannot, you're not stable. Okay. Like reality becomes too much for you and you have zero control. Like you have, you're powerless, mm -hmm. which is a lot what you were going through with, um, within your own home mm -hmm. where you had this imbalance of obviously at a very young age, you felt like you needed to look out for your brother to make sure that his and that he wasn't going through something himself. Mm -hmm. It's one of those where it's not just one type of anxiety you can go through. You can go through all three types of anxieties all at one time. Wow. Because you also, um, like I was saying, you also have the neurotic anxiety, which is a fear that the in instincts will get out of hand and cause one to do something for which one will be punished. Which one of the examples could be when you were making yourself supposedly be sick, mm -hmm. going to the nurse and stuff, you knew it was wrong. Yeah. But your anxiety to try to like go offend and help someone and stuff, it's like. You were battling like more than one form of anxiety. Yes. So, and then you go into your moral anxiety, which is one of those more of your inner stuff, like your morals, which is the fear of one's own um, conscience, which people, uh, people with a well-developed conscience tend to feel guilty when they do something contrary to, to their moral code, when the ego can't control anxiety by rational and direct methods. It relies on indirect ones, namely like the ego defense um, behavior. So it's like Catholic guilt. After yes. <laughs> exactly what I was going to say. I was going to say, yeah. It's true. It's or, one, like peer pressure. Yes. Where it's one of those where you know morally, for example, I'm going to say our parents always told us don't do drugs. Don't, but you know, everyone around you does it and you get this anxiety where you're just like, oh, like, what if I say no? What if it, and it kind of gets that peer pressure that that peer pressure can lead to anxiety. So you're saying parents need to back off and let us party. <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> We're done. We're, We're done. done. <laughs> parents should do a lot of things, but no. <laughs> you're like, no, no, no. Never that. Right? <laughs> it's just the way they come about it. Um, Unfortunately, how we, I mean, we can go a little bit back into the whole cultural taboo. You and I would come from Latin 
-hmm. parents are our parents are um hispanic they're mexicans so they're very from a different era from what Mm -hmm. we are um and how some people say están chapados a la antigua yeah and stuff so their perception of moral standing a moral standing is a lot different from the world we live in today yes what their kids have to go through it's like how do we how do you make them understand it's 20 it's 2022 now but how did you make them when we were in high school how did we make them understand (laughs) it was 20 it was 2000 the year like people are not it's not the same times it's like people really do suffer from these mental disorders it's not just because we're trying to be lazy or because we're being ancients or nervous and stuff it's like these are true feelings that are happening and if you don't have that support and you're just constantly bottling it up it's not going to get any better it's like and you start developing this cycle of when you're fighting your anxiety so you you're constantly bottling up all of this anxiety and stuff and it's like you try to not show it in front of your parents you try to not show it around people that are constantly going to be judging you and stuff and it that's not healthy i was like because you're bottling up emotions and you're bottling up ideas and that can't be healthy either and not just that mental health disorders love love to come in duos they love to come in pairs you constantly hear people that battle depression are also battling anxiety ptsd they're battling depression add they have adhd so it's like you they love to come in in pairs it's been proven it's been shown i've read Um, that somewhere that they're hand in hand pretty much they linger they're like friends they are very much best friends that you do not want to (laughs) have yeah there's those cousins that stick around The devil. <laughs> yeah, the devil. I, I was. I would love to say the devil and the angel on your um we on are, your things, but, but we're I don't know. Both but of us. <laughs> the duo you don't want to have. Just That's so true. <laughs> no, no, but um, no. Going back to anxiety, it really arises from one's personal strivings to survive and to maintain um and assert one's being and the feeling. And feeling anxiety generates um, our inevitable as- aspect of a of human condition. It's one of those where you cannot control how your body is going to react to an emotion, to um, a moment. A small little thing can trigger your anxiety. It's not, and it's not one of those where you'll have an anxiety episode and it's just going to be because you're going to start shaking. You're going to start being able no, you, it's not always about not being able to breathe, not being able. It's so many different ways that it comes in. Um, it's one of those where people that bite their nails, people just playing with their, their, with Pull their, their bracelets, pulling their hair. Mm-hmm. It's so many small little things, people just playing with their hands back and forth. So I was like, there's this new thing that we have support water bottles and stuff that everybody carry around their large <laughs> jugs of water their hydro flask people don't right. realize that's their comfort to mm. them that's true because okay hear me out here yes like when people are in like social settings don't they have like that thing where like they need to have something for example if you go to a party um i'm a drinker and i'm used to having a beer in my hand as long as i have something in my hand i feel very comfortable but when i stop drinking because i i get off the 
the, the booze every once in a while. Um, I feel so awkward. Just, you have a discomfort. Yeah. You just you feel so out of place yes. being there. That's exactly what it is because your anxiety starts kicking in and stuff because we're so accustomed. That's like our relief for us. It's like we ha- we need that little bit of comfort so that we don't spiral into this like anxiety. And it's like, like I was saying before, you don't need to be having a full on panic attack or anxiety attack um, in public in order for you to be developing anxiety, yeah. for you to be having an anxiety attack or not feeling there it's like anxiety comes and it's like you can't control it yeah 99 percent of the time yeah my grandma she'll pick like the the skin around her cuticles Mm -hmm. to where it's like bleeding she'll pick like all around and then when she's done with her thumbs she'll move on to like her index and we always tell her like Mm -hmm. why do you do that it's her anxiety but she doesn't believe in mental illness so she just she she doesn't believe in it because she says that she doesn't want to be on drugs. Immediately, she links antidepressants with drugs, and you're an addict. And I'm just like, her doctors have tried um, putting her on different medications, and she's like, nope, I don't believe in it. And I'm like, okay, that's fine. You don't have to take meds. But, yeah, it's like you said, the taboo mm-hmm. thing and the anxiety without her even knowing it. She's picking her. Yeah, she gets, And I know when she's nervous because she'll start just with her hands i i get where your grandma's coming from because i do believe that like there's a lot of antidepressant drugs that lead into developing a habit later on oh not just that that they have negative effects on people because it's whatever um certain medications and stuff can cause a whole other thing for you Mm -hmm. but no you're completely right when it comes to um it becoming, it can become an addiction. It can become, you basically become dependent on the, on these medications. Um, it's not saying that your anxiety went away and you're just taking these medications is that you become so like, that's your comfort mm-hmm. to you. It's yeah. like, you feel like you depend you're leaving one thing for another. Yes. Yeah. So it's like, you start developing this type of addiction for these medications when Next thing you know, they're going to have to start increasing your dosage and stuff because it's like, it's not going to be helping you anymore. Yeah. Because it's like, you start developing this like need for it and like dependency for it. It's like you become super dependent on these medications and stuff. Not to say that medications are bad. Right. But it does become a problem when it turns into an addiction, when it turns into this is the only support that I have. This is the only thing that I have. That's why I had mentioned previously having a strong support system is so important. Um, You need to be completely honest with yourself and the people around you. Mm -hmm. Let them know, like, this is what's going on. You don't have to tell everyone that you're feeling anxious or that you're suffering from anxiety. But if you can find one person that you feel comfortable enough to let them know, let them in, um, that alone can be so helpful with dealing with your anxiety, with helping you cope with it, manage it a lot more, especially when you're in public. Because it's like I said, I was like, you even though you don't have to full on have an anxiety attack or panic attack in front of everyone, your anxiety is still overpowering whatever situation you're in. Your emotions are out of whack and stuff. So having someone there to support you, to help you is 
very basically for your health. Um, but going back to things that can trigger your anxiety, there can be several things that can cause it. Um, one of them, for example, I was like my parents, my mom, she's been battling with her anxiety um, and depression for years. And her anxiety basically developed from financial issues. It's uh, not knowing whether she was going to have enough money to pay her bills to be able to feed all of us. And it's caused her for her depression, first of all, feeling like she was not being able to fulfill her duty as a parent and her anxiety of constantly trying to do better, constantly feeling like she was not meeting um, what she needed to meet as a parent, thinking that she was a failure all the time. She would um, isolate herself. She would completely spiral out of control, just thinking like, oh my God, I'm not being a good parent. I can't um, do this, so on and so forth. She, instead of going and seeking help from a friend, a family member, I was like, she's sort of developed this addiction to her anti to her anxiety pills. I was like, she's so accustomed to taking these anxiety pills. They've had to up her dose several times and stuff. She has such a need for them when in reality, as someone that has studied psychology, that has studied um, anxiety, I, for myself personally, I feel it's not healthy anymore of how many, how dependent she is for these medications. I feel she should seek out therapy, which she refuses to, which, like I said, it does come into the aspect of her not believing that it's a true illness, illness and stuff, yeah. sickness and stuff, which is kind of funny considering she does take the medication for it, <laughs> but she's become so in need of it. It's, but we did kind of touch upon, you know, they do come from a different generation um, and bringing in a little bit of like my anthropo cultural anthropology and psychological anthropology knowledge. Um, everything is determined of time, the time that you grew up, the time that, you know, you're going through something is also a huge factor when deciding what it is you got diagnosed with or how you're being treated or, you know, it, it's not just location. It's not just, you know, are you in the United States? Or are you in these other, you know, places? It's also like what during that time is known and also what is socially accepted, you know, because for example, like you said earlier, our parents come from Mexican background. It's very common for them to literally be like, Push that shit aside mm -hmm. and get through your day. Just keep moving forward. Yeah. Doesn't matter if you have this enormous, enormous mental illness that literally cripples you day in and day out. You need to push through regardless. Mm -hmm. You don't need no drugs. You don't need none of this. You don't need no help. You don't need to see the doctor. I don't know why we have a stigma against doctors too, <laughs> but they do. And then they just tell you to like kind of just get over it. You mm -hmm. know, it's not that simple. And I think. They see, well, maybe some people see the repercussions of that because they have to deal with it on a daily, but maybe that's just become their new norm. Yeah. From what I've seen within my family is my grandparents, well, my grandma mainly, um, like I told you guys, she kind of just had this stigma against it. She still has it to this day. Whereas my mom was diagnosed with um, depression and anxiety. She had an accident um, maybe about five years ago 
four years ago where she was hit by a car and it completely threw off her whole nervous system and she would never go through any kind of anxiety until that so i think she has like a little bit of ptsd Mm -hmm. um and so she's never been the same and my mom does not understand her well growing up my mom never understood my mom my -hmm. grandma and my mom never really understood each other Mm -hmm. so um this just made it even worse this Mm -hmm. made it like where they didn't really know each other but they knew each other because that's your daughter that's your mom but now it's like that's a stranger because yeah. ever since my mom's accident, she's on pills, she's on, you know, like her antidepressants, and my grandma is like against it. So it really does bring this wall between their relationship. Mm-hmm. And it also goes into how my grandma raised my uncles and my mom. Um, I think there's a lot of gaslighting. I think there was a lot of, you know, not paying attention, emotional neglect, from what I'm understanding as an adult um, and how I see it. Mm-hmm. I was going to talk to you about that. Um, how you were raised. So how you were raised, I know that sometimes it's genetics, but how you were raised can bring on mental illness, right? Yes, that is correct. Okay. I was like, the environment you surround yourself with can have a lot to do with your mental health. Um, and then any, um, abnormal, um, any abnormal, um, Disorders that you can develop. Why did I forget? (laughs) Girl, I can't even speak today. Any abnormal disorders that you can develop. Okay, so now another thing. Do you believe that mentally ill parents raise mentally ill children? I believe that it has a huge, huge connection. Um, It doesn't mean that that just because your parents have a mental disorder means that you're going to have a mental disorder. But there is a higher chance for you to have that. Um, Especially when I feel actually your research has shown that people that are from that don't have the means or the income to get treatment or get help early on when it comes to mental disorders are more than likely to pass it on to their kids. So depression, it's one of those things where have some, there are battling some type of mental disorder, there is a higher chance for you to be developing that mental disorder as well, or a similar mental disorder. It does not mean that it's going to be the exact same symptoms or the exact same um, issues Mm -hmm. or disorders and stuff, but you can develop a similar cycle that they go through. And then we kind of talked about this earlier, but like how I brought up the fact that I read somewhere that narcissistic parents raise kids that have borderline personality disorder. That is actually true. That's I've actually read that before as well. Um, there is a higher possibility of parents that have that are very narcissistic towards their um, kids or just in general um, can develop can cause for their kids to develop a borderline personality disorder. Um, borderline um, personality disorder is one of those um, mental illnesses that isn't spoken about enough. Um, it's a combination of impulsive self-destructive behavior, fragile self-identity, and moody storm, um, stormy relationships. I was like someone that's extremely narcissist. Um, their moods swing around all the time. They change the way that they speak to you um, all the time. They make you question your own emotions, your own thoughts. They make you not really, they make you second guess what your own opinions are. They brainwash you. And stuff in a way where you don't even realize that you're being brainwashed. They manipulate you and don't you don't even realize it and stuff. It's easier for people that are on the outside 
um, looking in for them to realize that your parents, the person, your, your, your partner, whoever is being a narcissist, mm -hmm. they live off of um, making themselves look like the victim and making you look like the villain in the story. So that definitely has a huge impact on um, developing a child that can be suffering from borderline personality disorder. It's funny because I saw something on TikTok that was uh, kind of saying, when you get older, you realize that the cool parent was the, neg what is the word? Negligent parent? Yeah. And I'm like, whoa, that just blew my mind. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That your eye. And then the strict parent raises an introvert and socially awkward child well into adulthood i could see that so I'm i can like, see that too yeah wait, real question so can you explain a little bit of like symptoms related to bi um sorry not bipolar um borderline personality, borderline personality. um well there is a combination like i said the definition of it is a combination of impulsiveness and self-destructive behavior um they are extremely moody um they're um, moods are erratic, to say the least. They um, can go from one extreme to another very fast. And they you constantly don't know what kind of personality you're going to get mm -hmm. from them and stuff. And it's different reasons. It's not basically, it's not saying that they're crazy. Because I, I know that word gets to thrown, be thrown around a lot. Um, that... And then, but they're um, probably just second guessing themselves constantly. Then, yes, I also know that fear of abandonment is really big with mm -hmm. borderline um, personality disorder because so pushing people away could be their way of, you know, that is very avoiding common. being let down. Or, I was yeah. even gonna say, so, like, in a situation where you have a narcissist parent and a child who may have border borderline personality disorder, if say the parent is no longer in the picture then can this person literally develop or somehow have a more, I don't even want to say stable, that sounds like a horrible word, but a more stable, healthy um, mental state. And then when that parent comes back, could that cause any kind of like backlash back to the so, symptoms? So it very much comes back, comes down to how did they, so if they can easily go from being with a narcissist parent to developing a healthier, more stable um, life. Um, it depends on how strongly you you build your, how do I explain it without stuff? So it basically comes up, because I know you're, what you're asking is if you, if you take away, you take the, away the narcissist mm -hmm. and then you are no longer with them and then they come back, are you going to fall back to being yeah. the way that you were? No, it's not going to happen. It could happen, but... It all comes down to the way that you healed yourself throughout. So if you build a very strong, healthy, um, stable life, mental mm -hmm. life for yourself, you get the correct treatment, you have the support system that you need. A narcissist person can still come around. That does not necessarily mean that you're going to fall back into their cycle that they're so used to and accustomed for them to be taking. I was like, narcissists are very um, accustomed to making, like I said, making themselves be the victim and making you feel like you did something wrong. Mm -hmm. They are constantly going to be the, you did this because, because you did this. I had to do this. Yeah. Um, people can outgrow that. I was like, you, 
if you, it's not something that it's going to happen overnight. Like, oh my God, like if this person comes around, I'm not going to be, I'm not going to fall into their trap again. No, I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is that it takes a while, but if you have the right people around you and you start basically creating a very strong mental, um, stable um, mind for yourself, there is ways to recognize and also these people build are being... ba boundaries, right? Yes. Okay, can I ask you something with yes. all that with to, to kind of chime in with that? Mm -hmm. Um, when they say healing your inner child, is that part of kind of like say you're raised by a narcissist, you're healing your inner child, so that that inner child that wanted, you know, all this their parent to be different and just the letdowns and everything that the abuse and all that. Mm -hmm. So healing your inner child, what does that actually mean? Healing your inner child basically comes down to you accepting that it was not your fault okay. for everything that was done to you. Um, I know the main focus right now is on your parent being super narcissist and having the way that it um, you heal your inner child is basically coming to the realization and the acceptance that mm -hmm. it was never your fault. It was, and it's not about saying putting the blame on your parents and stuff. It's you accepting the fact that they had a disorder and it was never your fault. It was never your um, job to try to fix them, mm -hmm. to try to make them feel better. It's you realizing that they were never intentionally trying to be bad people. They just had a negative way of going about on raising or talking to people and stuff because of um, their own issues because of their own inner demons that they're battling narcissists are narcissists they're not going to accept the fact that they are not good people that they um love to manipulate people and love to manipulate situations um to love to play the victim and love to gas and love to gaslight people all the time so you can heal your inner child. Healing your inner child is basically coming to the realization and accepting the fact that it was never your fault. Because narcissists will always make you feel like you're the reason why A, B, C, and D was done. That you're the reason why I had to do this. You're the reason that I did this. Like it, they will never take accountability for what their actions. They will gaslight you night and day, basically. And once you learn to accept that it was never your fault that it was always that it was them that's how you'll be able to heal your inner child basically you coming to terms that you had zero control how they were going to be that you that there was nothing you could have done differently nothing you could have said or treated them differently to make the situation any better or any less um, traumatic for you so in a way, it's kind of like forgiving yourself. Yes. And forgiving in a, them in forgiving, a way. Yeah. No, you're forgiving both of them, both yourself and them. But it's one of those accepting and telling yourself and realizing that you were n never in the wrong. They were the ones that were brainwashing you or making you believe a certain thing. They when were in reality your wasn't. psyche. Yeah. yeah. That makes sense. Mm -hmm. That's a, that, that blows my mind. I know. It all goes hand in hand. Everything kind of links together. Every single disorder and every single thing all come back to being a similar aspect. Okay. So we got so much info from you today. 
And thank you for letting us pick your brain. Um, I just want to know and kind of close out with positive ways to cope. I know there's no like infinite cure for everybody. If it was, you know, we'd all be good. But um, what are some things that you would suggest or steps that you can take um, for somebody that maybe kind of is not diagnosed, but is curious, you know, maybe they, everything we talked about, maybe something resonated with them today. And, you know, we're not diagnosing anybody, but what would you say are the right steps for them? So one of the, my biggest thing would be if you have the means, um, not all employers, but many employers and many insurances do cover at least five sessions of therapy per year. Um, for you to be able to see someone and stuff. If you are not sure if you're suffering of any type of mental disorder, first of all, go see a doctor. Mm -hmm. um, unfortunately, it might take more than one session, more than one visit, several different doctors in order for someone to actually listen to you. Um, unfortunately, like I said, anxiety and depression are such common um, mental disorders that some doctors just... Um, say, oh, it's nothing, or they're diagnosing with something else. But you know your mental state. You know when you're falling down a rabbit hole where you're just, there's no way out and stuff. So seek a doctor and stuff and ask to see a therapist. I was like, if your insurance, if your job offers for you to be able to see a therapist, I do highly recommend to speak to someone. Um, not everyone has a friend, a sibling, an cousin, whatever, a coworker that they feel comfortable enough to talk to and stuff. Um, but you need to talk to someone. I was like, that's the only way you'll be able to cope with anything, especially when it comes to um, dealing with narcissist people, with your anxiety, with your depression, um, eating disorders, paranoia, PTSD, schizophrenia, even um, psychosis, OCD, any type of mental disorder that one goes through and stuff. The My biggest thing um, that I say you should go, um, you should do is speak to someone. Um, a therapist would be my number one um, recommendation. Seek help. Ask your employer if they provide um, assistance with being able to see their uh, therapist. Like I said, certain employers do provide five free sessions. Not all employers. Um, but it doesn't hurt that, to ask. But right? it yeah, it doesn't hurt to ask. The, the worst thing they can tell you is no. I was like, there are other um, some medical insurances, even if it's not through your job. If you have any type of medical insurance and stuff, some of them provide that type of assistance where you can speak to someone. If you don't have the means or the income to be able to see a therapist, find someone around you that you trust enough. You need that support system. You need someone that has your back. You need someone to listen to you. And also, guys, um, you might also want to just look around your local community because there's also a lot of free resources out there nowadays since this is a huge issue, um, not only in you know the United States, but the world right now, especially with the pandemic. Um, I know that counties have really upped their game to try to provide people with some support and resources that are dealing with um, some of the traumas from the pandemic, and some of those are all related to mental health. So reach out to your, you know, city um, 
councils, whatever, like they, they have resources out there for you. So, and if you can't get, if your community doesn't have anything um, for you guys, please, please reach out to um, the, a hotline. I was like, there is a hotline that helps that um, people can call just to speak to someone. It doesn't have to be someone you know. It's anonymous who you speak to, um, especially for if you're having thoughts of suicide. Please dial 988 or text GO to 741741 to reach a trained crisis counselor through Crisis Text Line, a global nonprofit organization that is free 24-7 and it is confidential. Well, thank you so much, Gabby, for joining us. And just again, for all the knowledge, um, you shared so much. And I know there's so much more info, but you have been so informative. So thank you. Of course, anytime. Anytime? Because I'm going to hold you to that. Okay, maybe, <laughs> so okay, maybe sometimes. <laughs> She's got to protect her mental health, too. Yes, yeah, yes. Yes. Thank you. Well, yeah, Gabby, thank you for coming. Thank you for dealing with all this crazy noise and literally giving us, you know, the more fruitful part of this conversation, because without your knowledge, it wouldn't have been possible. And I know we've been planning this forever. So thank you for finally coming. <laughs> and thank you for not going straight home after I couldn't answer my phone. And thank you. Oh, you're welcome. You're welcome. Gabby Thank is like my own me. personal therapist, by the way. Like, she probably knows everything about me. Like, even the shit that I don't say, like, she knows. She knows. She doesn't have to tell me for me to know. So, and look at how well I turned out, guys. So, take her advice. <laughs> We're trying to steer them the right way, girl. <laughs> They'd be like, no, thank you. All right, thanks. Hey guys, welcome to another segment of Lyrical Locals. Today we have a band by the name of Grave Saddles, and Grave Saddles is actually a band that was formed in 2019 after a disastrous Midwest tour with their previous band that left them stranded in Ohio for a week. They were out there and they saw a sign that said something like, Grave Saddles for sale, and they ran with it. They actually started the band upon coming back home, and they played their full first full band show in November 2019. Their major release as Grave Saddles was 2021's You Thought You Were Cool, which they self-released on cassette, and now they're working on another full-length album. The track that we're going to share with you is called Myopia, and it's actually an early version of a song that'll be on their next full-length sometime next year, so you guys are getting a sneak peek. You can follow them on Instagram at Grave Saddles. Oh, and by the way, they have 13 cats. Enjoy!
again, thank you for listening. We appreciate you. And don't forget to keep it cool. Under chaos. Love ya. Bye. Thank you.